The word theologically is eschatology. It means the study of the last days or the end times. It's a subject that is difficult because of the various opinions about what sequence of events may occur in fulfillment of all that is spoken of in the both Old Testament and New Testament with regard to the last days. Some of that confusion comes from the words themselves. What is meant by the last days? What is meant by the tribulation? How long is it? When does it happen? When does the rapture occur? When will the Ezekiel war happen? When will Damascus be destroyed in a single day as a ruinous heap? When will the millennial reign of Christ begin? Those are all valid questions and they all pertain to things that haven't yet happened. And that's why we call them last days because they are in some time in our near future, I presume, but I don't know for sure how long that may be that any of those events will indeed begin to unfold. But what we are told in the Bible is some very, very encouraging news with regard to the church as it pertains to what we are to expect in the last days. The church, according to the Apostle Paul, is not going to suffer the wrath of God. That's very explicit. He says so in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, where we have recently been, In chapter 1, verse 10, it says, We're to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, what does Paul mean by the wrath to come? Does he refer to the wrath to come in relationship to the unsaved, so that the wrath of God against the unsaved at the final judgment of God, the great white throne of judgment, is that what he's speaking of here? I submit to you, no, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about another wrath that is to come. And But what is that? And so that is why I believe it's so very, very important for us to put into context the words that we use when we speak of the last days. And sometimes many theologians have erred because they remove from the context specific words to build on a doctrine that really does not fit the remainder of Scripture. And that's where we need to be very, very careful in our study of God's Word. We must compare Scripture to Scripture. We must not build doctrines on one single particular Scripture and exclude the other Scriptures that speak of the same thing in a slightly different way, with slightly different language. And there's another problem that we have as well. We have before us the written Word of God. The Bible has been put together by scholars in the primarily second and third centuries, and all the books that we have, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are copies of the original writings. Now, granted, there was great, careful copying throughout the years of every letter of the Word of God. The Jews in particular were so meticulous that they would, the scribes who were recording the various 
portions of the Word of God would write a letter, put their quill down, wash their hands, and then proceed writing the next letter, making care to absolutely ensure that the letter that they had written is a duplicate of the letter that was before them. So that, well, for instance, we can go back to Isaiah, written 750 B.C. Well, we don't have the original writings of Isaiah, and most of the manuscripts that we have had up till the recent years were manuscripts that were copies of copies of copies, and the earliest dated one was around three or 400 A.D. That's rather old, but it certainly isn't as old as the time of Isaiah, some seven or eight hundred years prior to that, or more. But then we discovered something in the 50s, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And within the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found copies of Isaiah that were much, much older. Making a comparison of the copies that were available and the copies that were found at that time, identical. Now, it's presumed that that kind of historic recording of the data was maintained throughout the years. So we can speak with confidence that we have as close to the original writings as possible with the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, what about the New Testament Scriptures? Well, obviously, the New Testament was written much later than the Old. It was all of it written in the current time frames after Christ was raised from the dead. So we have newer versions of those letters that were written than we have of the Old Testament. However, there are many, 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 many manuscripts of all the letters of the New Testament, and quite frankly, there are differences among them. Why? Well, it's hard to say why. There are some assumptions that can be made as to why. But what we have before us is the compilation of detailed recording of the most accurate, as far as we can tell, manuscripts. Comparing manuscript to manuscript, over and over and over again, they came up with what we now have as the New Testament. And we can be certain that although it's not exactly as the original language in every single detail, we can have faith in what we have that even though we may have different translations, we have the New King James, we have the Old King James, we have the New American Standard, we have the NIV, and many, many others, and there are some places where those translations don't agree specifically with one another. But none of it changes the promise of God's promise to you and to me that Jesus is indeed coming again. They differ in certain statements that are made. For instance, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, John is seeing a vision. He has been called up into heaven. And he sees and records in this vision that the one who sits on the throne holds a scroll. And there is an invitation made. Who will come and open the seals of the scroll? There were seven seals on that scroll. And John wept at the result of that question because he found no one in heaven 
on earth or under the earth who could open the scroll. Until the angel proclaimed to John, Behold, the Lion of Judah, he is able to open the scroll. And John sees this in an image, in a vision, this one coming to the throne of God, taking that scroll and opening that first seal. That's Jesus. And John says, I didn't see him as the Lion of Judah. I saw him as a lamb that was slain. So it's very obvious what he's talking about is the person of Jesus Christ opening that first scroll. So what is that first scroll? Well, immediately following that, we find that the opening of that first scroll introduces a period of time that we all know as the tribulation, that seven-year period of time that is yet to be fulfilled, and that period of time is going to begin when that seal is open, that first seal on that scroll. Because we're told that immediately following the opening of that seal, the horses of the apocalypse come forth. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, that describes in detail the series of events that will take place in that last seven-year period of time that we know of as the tribulation period. Also in chapter 5, John is in heaven seeing this vision. There are 24 elders that we must assume are men who have been appointed some kind of position in the heavenly places, somehow there with John in that particular vision. And if 24 elders sing a song when that first seal is open, talking about how worthy is the Lamb of God to open the seal, for He has redeemed us. Who's us? Well, the assumption is, if you have a translation that uses that pronoun, us, then you would have to assume that He's talking about the church. We are in heaven with John. Us is the church. We're already there when the first seal is open. Why is that important? Because if that is so, then we are in heaven before the tribulation starts. That means that the rapture of the church must then occur before the tribulation starts. Now here comes a caveat. Not all translations say us. Some of the translations that we have, and they're all very good translations, people. Don't get me wrong. But there are differences enough so that you can see that it makes it very difficult to be dogmatic about certain things. And this is one of them. Because instead of the word us used in the book of Revelations, chapter 5, some translations have, you have redeemed them. Who's them? Not those that are in heaven but them who are on the earth, apparently. So therefore, there are some who take that translation and say, see there, that's proof that the church is going to be on the earth during the tribulation period. If it's us, that's proof. (laughs) Do you see the contrast? Do you see the difficulty? You can't use just that one passage to make a doctrinal statement. You have to look through the entire Word of God. And so I hope that we can continue through our study of these last day's events that are recorded for us in the book of 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians. As we move forward in those texts, we will see, I believe, proof of what I believe to be the most accurate understanding of these end times prophecies.
I am a pre-trib rapture person. If you're not, we still have plenty of opportunity to fellowship with one another, and we should never be at odds with one another over such an issue, because it hasn't yet been fully revealed. We only know about it, and we can make assumptions about it, and we can develop certain doctrines that are potentially wrong. I submit to you that as a pre-trib rapture believer, I could be wrong. I don't think I am. But I'm not going to shove my view down your throat. If you think I'm wrong, that's okay. We'll, we'll get this all resolved when we're all of us up there, whether it's before the tribulation or after the tribulation. So let's look at this with open eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to what does the Word of God say. And then we make judgments based upon what the Word of God does actually say, not what your pastor says. Although it's okay if you believe what I believe, I'm convinced that I'm right. And you're entitled to your, as Joe Foch would say, your own distorted opinion. Let's read together. Beginning actually not where we left off the last time, but I'd like to reread chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, beginning with verse 13. Because it follows right into what continues in chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today for the remainder of our time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I want to stop there for just a moment and focus for a bit on the word sleep. We talked about it the last time. Paul is referring to Christians who have died. And he uses the word sleep. It's a specific word in the Greek language. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's like a long, long 25-letter word. And we call it sleep. If you look in chapter 5, we're going to see the word sleep again. But it's not referring to Christians having fallen asleep. It's referring to the outside world, those who are not Christ, who are said to be sleeping. Is he talking about the same thing? Using the same English word. But that's where we should be more careful than we sometimes are because it's not using the same Greek word. It's a different Greek word. There are similarities in the words, but they have a different sense from the Greek language, then they appear to have in our English language. Because we use the same word sleep to translate both words in the Greek, and the words in the Greek are indeed different, and they have different contextual value. So Paul is saying here, I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned about you, I don't want you to be ignorant. And he tells us, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 1, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why does he say that? Because he knows that they're not ignorant about those things. He knows that they have been well taught. He's the one that taught them. He spent three Sabbaths in Thessalonian churches, wherever they were meeting, talking about end times before he had to be pushed away outside of Thessalonica to move on to some other territory because of oppression against him, persecution, he had to move on. But he taught them about end times things. So much so that he can remind them, hey guys, I'm not con- concerned about you. I know you know these things because I taught you, I taught you when I was there. So back into verse 
4, uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The others who have no hope are those outside of the faith. The ones who have fallen asleep are those who have been believers who have died in Christ. Those who are remaining are the recipients of this letter. And you and I are also recipients of this letter as well. Verse 14 in that same chapter 4 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, is there anyone here who doesn't believe that Jesus died and rose again? Don't raise your hand. Don't confess that here. But if you do believe it, see me after church. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Who's he talking about there again? Those sleepers? Those are the Christians who died. They're coming with Jesus. That's what the Word of God says. Now, wait a minute. If that's the case, what do we get out of the next couple of verses where he says, For if, again, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the Word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed, or precede rather, those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So if they're coming with him, what does he mean by the dead in Christ, those who are sleeping, will rise from the dead? If they're there, how can they be there? Well, that's simply explained by the fact that he's talking about those who are in heaven with Christ, coming with him, they died and their souls went to be with the Lord. Their bodies went into the grave. When Jesus comes for the church, their bodies will be raised up from the grave, their souls will be coming with Jesus, and they will be reunited with their glorified bodies in the air. So there's no contradiction But take note of the fact that he also says, we who are alive and remain. Who is he talking about? Those Christians who are still alive when that event takes place. Now I submit to you that Paul wrote that over 1900 years ago. Almost 2000 years ago. It ain't happened yet. But Paul expected it to happen in his lifetime. It's obvious because he says, we, including himself, who remain. Now, that's why I consider this issue of pronouns to be such a major, major issue for the church in terms of our understanding. Another Greek word, exegesis. It's the dividing of the word of truth. Paul tells us that we are to divide the word of truth, to rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly divide the word of truth so that we need not be ashamed in the day when we come before him. We won't have to stand before him and say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I got that all wrong, didn't I? If you're rightly dividing the word of truth, you'll be able to stand before him unashamed. That's what Paul tells Timothy, and I believe that's what he's telling us as well. So back here again in verse 17 of chapter 4, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Does it mention anywhere in that passage that we'll be touching ground? We're leaving this earth. I don't know how that's going to happen. But from what I can see, it's going to happen quickly. I don't know when that's going to happen. But from what I can see, it could be any day. Paul thought it would be any day. 
Was Paul wrong? No, you can't say that. At least you shouldn't say that. What Paul was saying is, I don't know exactly when all of these things are going to happen, but I'm convinced that I'm ready for it to take place. Jesus himself had told his disciples, keep looking up for your redemption draws near. Why would he tell them that if it wasn't so? He wanted them to be expecting his return. Every day of their lives, their focus should be an expectation of Christ returning perhaps today. That's why Paul can say in chapter 4, verse 18, the following words, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. How could I be comforted if I believed that I was going to be going through seven years of hell on earth? How could I be comforted if I knew that I might suffer martyrdom at the hands of the Antichrist? How could I be comforted if I were to expect all kinds of plagues taking place all around me for that period of seven years. Earthquakes, water turning to blood, spiritual activity that is unheard of and unseen until that day. How could I be comforted by those promises that are given to us with regard to the things that God is going to do as He expresses His and pours out His wrath upon an unchristly world, a Christ-rejecting world? The time of Jacob's trouble... A time, Jesus said, like no other time has ever been nor ever will be. Now, I believe, friends, that we're approaching that time. And I'm convinced that the things that we're seeing today are beginnings of sorrows. Those things that we're beginning to see unfold in and around us. I'm amazed at how quickly things are changing. And they're not changing for good. There's nothing that is happening today that will convince me that we're ushering in the kingdom of Christ. That's a lie. Because the Word of God says that that isn't going to happen. That's just the opposite of what we are to expect. This world is coming to a place of condemnation by a holy God who says, because you have ejected my salvation that I've offered you freely, you are going to be judged in this wrath that is being poured out against all mankind who are on the face of the earth at that hour. Now, will there be anybody saved during that period of time? Yes. We know them as the tribulation saints. And it's not because of the Left Behind series of books that I use that phrase. There are saints who will be saved during that seven-year period of time. But folks, listen carefully. They'll lose their lives as a result of their commitment to Jesus Christ during that time. The vast majority of them will lose their lives. And that's one reason, by the way, and I'm kind of moving ahead from where I wanted to be, but I just want to clear this one thing as another example of a way of proving the pre-tribulation rapture. Because if the tribulation saints are all of us included, that means that the vast majority of us will die during the tribulation period. So if the vast majority of saints die during that seven-year period, then who will be alive and remain to be caught up in the air at the end of the tribulation period? That makes no sense. Logically speaking, the only understanding of the timing of the rapture of of the church is a pre-tribulation rapture. That's why Paul says, comfort yourselves. I'm comforted by the fact that we who are alive and remain will be caught up. 
I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus said, keep looking up, your redemption draws near. I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus had told his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, what's going to happen for that seven-year period of time with regard to the church? Well, you won't find any explanation of that in the book of Revelation between chapters 6 and 19. There's no mention of the church. Another reason for us to realize, well, since there's no mention of the church during that terrible period of time, then perhaps it must be so that the church won't be on the earth. And I believe that is exactly what is being implied in the Word of God. Moving forward, I want to get back to this issue of pronouns. Because it is a big deal. Take a look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. Listen carefully to what Paul says. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you, that's a pronoun. It means you and you and you. It's got person. First person is I. You is second person. You make a distinction when you're talking to somebody. If you're talking to him or her, or if you're talking to them or others or ourselves. Pronouns make a difference in who it is that is being addressed. Keep that in mind as you read further. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when, listen, verse 3, critically important, for when they say, who is a pronoun? It's third person. They say, not you say, not I say, but when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they, not us, they, not me, not you, they, who is they? Those who are outside of the faith, those who are left behind, those who are not members of the church of God, they who are left on the earth at that hour when Christ begins to move against a Christ-rejecting world. They shall not escape. Oftentimes, people who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture are known as escapists because the argument is, well, you're just trying to convince people that you're going to escape the wrath that's going to come. And I submit to you, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. I am convinced that I will escape the wrath that is to come. Paul says it here. There will be those who will not escape. That implies that we will. He's separating us from them. Make it clear in your mind that this is what Paul is doing. He's setting up an understanding for us to actually be able to isolate these times and seasons in such a way as to know with confidence that we can indeed be comforted by the promises of God's Word. They shall not escape. Well, go back and look again at verse 4. But, so that but is there for a reason. He's saying, they won't escape, but. But what? But brethren, you are not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now he says, he's coming as a thief in the night, but that day will not overtake you what does he mean? It means that they will not overtake you. Can it be any more clear than this? 
we won't be there. That's how it will happen. That, that day won't overtake us. Now, there are illustrations in the Old Testament that give us pictures of these last days. And one of those illustrations is Noah in the ark. Noah and his family, just eight souls, they got into the ark. They brought all the animals that were being brought from wherever they were into the ark. God brought them in. And then after everything was in the ark that was supposed to be in that ark, God himself closed the door and sealed it from the outside. That's a picture of salvation. Now the waters came. The floods and the waters under the ground rose that ark up off the surface of the, of the ground and it began to float. And that's a picture of us having been taken out of from the wrath of God. You see the picture? If they were still going through that wrath, they would be on the earth with all the others that could not escape. But they were given a means of escape from the wrath of God. However, there are some who would say, well, they weren't taken out of, they were just saved through. There's some sense in that, but it doesn't really follow the logic of what is being spoken by the illustration. In other words, there are people out there who will fight really, really hard to convince you that their interpretation of Scripture is correct. And they'll twist the Scriptures to make it so. Be careful. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful, especially in these last days. Jesus said, the very first thing that Jesus said when his disciples asked him, when is the sign of your coming and when is the end of these things? Jesus said, be careful. Do not be deceived. That's what he spoke initially. That was the very first warning that Jesus gave. Do not be deceived. Friends, that still applies today. Do not be deceived. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit. And you know, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us is He pours out on all of us, every one of us, gifts. And one, I believe, of the most important of those gifts, especially in these last days, is the gift of discernment. Read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's there. It's one of the gifts. And we should be taking advantage, full advantage of it because there is much deception going on in the world today. This word, the last days, phrase, that's another thing that has to be taken within its proper context because there are many places in the Word of God that don't seem to agree with other places in the Word of God with respect to what does it mean when we see those words, the last days. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament. The oldest of Old Testament prophets, of the minor prophets in particular, Hosea, spoke of the last days. Joel, another Old Testament prophet, just another hundred years afterward, spoke of those same things, the last days, perhaps more so than any other of the Old Testament prophets. They spoke of the last days as being a time of great trouble, a time of God's vengeance upon the earth, a time when there will be 
signs and wonders in the heavens that will have been absolutely unbelievable events. The book of Revelation speaks very much of those same things. Jesus himself spoke very much of those same things. Paul tells us about those same things. John, Peter, they all tell us about the terrible things that are going to take place upon the face of the earth in the last days. But if you look at what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 verse 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. But he says, at his coming, we know, we have confidence that we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. So John is saying that in the last days, Jesus will come again. It's in agreement with everything else that the New Testament teaches us with regard to the last days. The last days includes a time when Jesus will return physically to the earth. Paul is not talking about that expectation in the passage that we've just been reading. Paul is talking about not when Jesus comes to the earth, but when instead we leave the earth to go to be with him. Later on, in 2 Thessalonians Second Thessalonians, we will see Paul talking about those events that will include the setting of Jesus' feet upon Mount Zion in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures that speak of those things. They're all talking about the last days, but different ways of understanding what it is that is being referenced when they use the phrase, the last days. It can typically include the time from the rapture of the church until the end of the millennial reign of Christ, a period of very long time, certainly over a thousand seven hundred, a thousand and seven years. That's because the millennial reign is a thousand year reign and we have a seven year tribulation period, but we don't know exactly when the rapture is going to take place. The rapture could be any day and the rapture does not necessarily bring the tribulation period into focus. It precedes the tribulation, but there's no telling how long it will be from the time of the rapture to the time that the tribulation begins. We're not told. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. I submit to you that it is most likely that much of what is going to take place as the world begins to move in that direction will take place after the rapture of the church. I believe that it's the rapture of the church that will influence the nations that are called upon by the Lord in the book of Ezekiel to come against the nation of Israel. Those nations being Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, Sudan. And we see that becoming more and more likely as these nations that I described are indeed working together with one simple goal in mind. They will not fulfill that particular goal until God says it is time. And I'm convinced that the rapture of the church will likely be a time when they will be more willing to move in that direction. Why? Because, well, the United States 
is still a very, very strong world power. It's estimated that there are over 80 million Christians in the United States alone. I don't really know if that's true. I don't really have any idea. It may be much less than that. But the point is, if the rapture does take place before the Ezekiel War, it may be cause for the Ezekiel War to take place. There'll be chaos. There'll be confusion. There'll be a whole lot of people missing all over the world. And of course, since the U.S. is a considered to be a Christian nation, it's logical to conclude that probably a larger percentage of our population will suddenly disappear. The graves will be opened. How will they explain such a thing? There are possibilities of their explanations that will include all the UFOs that they're talking about now. Have you actually paid attention to that, by the way? I look daily at different websites that purportedly bring the news of the world. And every single day for the past several months now, there hasn't been one day that has passed without reference to a UFO sighting. Why is that? Well, is it possible that those UFOs are going to take the church? That's what I think the world is going to be told. That we were removed, kind of like a cancer. They removed us. Why? Because we were causing problems in the world and, and these greater minds of the aliens that occupy those UFOs made a determination that all Christians had to go so that they could get their world order back to where they wanted it to be. What about all the wealth that we leave behind? Well, some of us won't leave much, but there's a lot of wealth in the Christian church. What if somebody comes along and says, hey, look, all those people that have gone... Hey, can't explain it, but I'll tell you what we can do. All of their wealth we're going to redistribute to the entire world and nobody will have any debt. That would be pretty attractive to a lot of people. Don't know. Could be part of it. What the Bible does say is after the church is gone, there will be a great deception. However it happens, whoever it is that propagates this lie, it is a lie, not only a lie, but it is the lie of Satan. And he will convince the world that they don't need the church anyway. We'll just continue on. And we'll make things happen. And one of the things that's going to happen is if, in fact, we're gone, no country in the world will be supporting the nation of Israel. We're hardly doing that today, but we still are. But there may come a day when we won't be able to. I've often said... We'll either not be able to or we won't want to as a nation support the people of God. If the rapture of the church does indeed cause that event to take place, then Russia and Iran would be very likely to be less apprehensive in invasions of Israel. Why do they invade it? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly they want to take a spoil. You know that Israel just found another natural gas field offshore? That's the fourth one. They're rich 
in resources right now. And Russia doesn't like it because Israel is a threat to their economy. Iran doesn't like Israel because they're Israel. Turkey doesn't like Israel because they want some of that wealth also that's in what they call their waters. Libya as well. Libya and Turkey have promised that they are going to move in the direction of establishing a zone in the Mediterranean that cuts Israel right out of the picture. That they will say, that's our gas gas fields or whatever, because it's in our national waters. They're changing the markers. They won't succeed. But that's their goal. So it doesn't surprise me to think that this is the most likely scenario. The rapture of the church takes place. And there's chaos all over the world. But somebody's going to come along and start saying, okay, we can piece this together. And we'll get everything back to normal. As quickly as we can, we can resolve these issues. And somebody's going to be able to do that very, very quickly. Coming from nowhere, it may take a few months, but eventually they will say exactly what Paul tells us they will say here in this portion that we just read. In verse 3 of chapter 5, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. They, not us. As far as the last days are concerned, again, John, in another portion of First John, says, these are the last hours. What John was saying was that God is almost ready very soon to fulfill all that he has promised. In John's day, in his time, John believed that the return of Christ was imminent. Peter also said, these are the last days. In his day, Paul said it as well. But keep in mind, when Paul was alive, when Peter was alive, there was a temple in Jerusalem. And they could assume, hey, the temple's there, everything's in place, the nation of Israel is there, we're good to go, everything's in place. But what about John? When he said, these are the last hours, do you realize John was in his 90s? And John was on the island of Patmos and he was given the revelation vision and when he was at that age the temple had already been destroyed and the diaspora had already taken place. Jews were no longer in the land when John wrote the book of Revelation. When John wrote 1st, 2nd and 3rd John those letters were written at a very late time near the end of the 1st century. So how could John say these are the last hours? What did he see? Well, in the book of Revelation, he tells us what he saw. He saw the temple in Jerusalem. He knew that there was going to be a time when there would be a restoration of all things. Now, over the many, many years between the first century and the 20th century, the church had a problem. Jews weren't in the land. The temple was destroyed. And it had never been rebuilt. As far as the church was concerned, there was a problem with the Word of God because the Word of God said that these things will take place and yet they looked around and they said, how can it be literal? So they began to spiritualize. 
They said, well, Israel isn't Israel the nation. Israel is the church. Of course, that only applied when it spoke highly of the nation of Israel. If there were negative things spoken about the nation of Israel, that will not pertain to the nation of Israel. But if there was good things, it pertained to the church. All the promises to Israel became promises to the church. And the church lived with that lie for hundreds of years until 1948. But even before then, in the 1700s, in the 1800s, there were men of God who saw the literacy of God's Word. It was to be taken literally. And if that was so, then they believed that there was coming a day when the nation of Israel would be reborn, that there would be another temple built, that the Jews would be in the land, that they would have their own language again, their own nationality again. They would be a people who were occupying the land that God had promised them. They were right. I believe that's still the case today. Since 1948, we have seen these things take place. That's part of the labor pains that is described. Remember, ladies, labor pains come, well, suddenly. You're pregnant. You're in your last weeks of your pregnancy. And all of a sudden, you feel something. It happened quickly. Suddenly. It came upon you and you said, "Uh uh-oh, something just happened. But you wait a few moments. You're not sure. But then maybe several minutes later, it happens again. And you begin to think, well, maybe it's time. Maybe it's going to happen soon. It could be. But you don't know yet because it's still far apart. And it could be maybe Braxton Hicks or other, you know, pseudo kinds of events. And then it happens again with greater frequency and sooner. And then it happens again with even more frequency and greater intensity. And then your water breaks and you call out your husband and say, let's get to the hospital now. Because you know that as time moves forward, you know it's going to happen. As labor pains, that's what Paul and that's what Jesus described with regard to the last days. There will be events that will begin to happen. We're in those periods of time when those events are indeed beginning to happen. Now, the Antichrist has not yet been revealed. And I'm going to give you a sneak peek into Second Thessalonians, which we'll get to perhaps in a couple of three weeks. That can't happen until the church is removed. Because we are a restraining force. We're here for a purpose. There's a reason that the church hasn't yet been taken out. What's that reason? The fullness of Gentiles has not yet come in. That means that there are people who are yet to be saved, who will be saved before Jesus comes for his church. These are all things that are recorded in the Word of God. These are all proofs of what I am telling you about these eventualities. I may not have them accurate in terms of when they take place, how long it will be before they happen, or in what sequence they happen. For all I know, the Ezekiel War could happen before the rapture of the church. It is a possibility that Israel will preemptively strike Iran and take out their nuclear capabilities, and that will be the cause of the U.S. disassociating themselves with the nation of Israel. But things are indeed taking place. Look around. All of the sinfulness that is prevalent throughout this land, whether it's LGBTQ+, 
plus plus two, three, eight, four, whatever they put on the end of that phrase. Everything. Gay rights, drag queens being presented to kindergartners in libraries throughout the land. In Utah, there was a district that ruled that the Bible cannot be any longer allowed in their schools because it's violent. Give me a break. But that's what we should expect. Things will continue to get worse. Why? Because we're seeing the labor pains. We're seeing the progression that is becoming more and more apt to explode in a completely different change world than what we know today. But that will not happen until the church is removed. We are indeed a restraining force. Evil cannot prevail. Evil has its way and is growing more and more every day. But we're slowing that process down by virtue of the fact that we're still here. Take us out and all hell breaks loose. Evil will have its day. And not only the evil in men's hearts and minds, but there will be a spiritual activity that has never been seen before that will begin to unfold in those last hours. I don't want to be here for that. I'm not expecting to be here for that. Peter says in chapter 3 of Second Peter, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Interesting, he uses that phrase because Paul just used it in that portion that we just read. You yourselves know perfectly that day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord for his church. Peter is talking about a different experience, a different time, a different event. But he calls it the last days. And he uses the phrase, a thief in the night. Are they both talking about the same thing? No. Is one of them wrong? No. They're using the same phrase to describe different events with great clarity, if you listen to what they're saying. Peter says that in that day, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Does that sound like something that is going to take place? It will. But when? At the end of the tribulation period. The rest of the scriptures that we refer to out of the book of Revelation, the things that Paul says, you put them all together and you realize that has to be talking about that time. Paul here is talking about a different time when Jesus comes as a thief in the night. And that is a time when he comes for his church. So, again, let me remind you, we have to be very careful when we take phrases out of the Word of God and try to apply them to specific details unless we compare those words with other statements that are made in the Word of God. And we have to be careful to make sure that we understand that pronouns do make a difference. They make a great difference. So going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll quickly try to put this all together for you in the end. He says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the light, nor of darkness. He's including himself, saying you are not, and he is not either. Therefore, let us, let us what? Not sleep. Wait a minute. 
I thought, saints are going to die, and calls, he calls that sleep, so what is he referring to here? Remember I said there are a couple of different words that are translated sleep? This is a second Greek word that is different, but still, in our English translations, the same. But it's a different context. It's a different meaning. We're not sleeping. In other words, we're not oblivious to what's going on. That's what he means by this form of the word that is translated sleep. As others do, who are the others? Those who are outside the church. We are not asleep as others are sleeping. So as a result of that fact, let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. Just illustrations of what he's trying to say. Don't get confused about the fact that, well, there are some who are sleeping and there are some who are drunk and who are they and who are those. It's those who are outside of faith in Christ that he's referring to. They're either asleep because they don't want to hear, they don't want to know, they don't care about the things of God, or they're drunk. Their minds are completely destroyed by their drunkenness. Either way, they're on the outside looking in. Well, they're not looking in yet, but they will. Verse 8 says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is now the third time that Paul uses that triad of words, faith, hope, and love. Look them up. Make sure you understand the context in which these are being written. Verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Oh, he said it again. Said it first in First Thessalonians 1.10. Says it here. First Thessalonians 5.9. Mark it in your book. Understand it. Realize what Paul is telling us. We will not see the wrath of God if we are believers in Christ Jesus. But instead, we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. God's wrath was poured out on Him. Jesus, at the cross. There's no reason in the world why you should think you've got to suffer the wrath of God. The wrath of God against a Christ-rejecting world is being described here. Tribulation is coming. Well, you might say, well, yeah, but doesn't Jesus himself say, in this world you shall have tribulation? Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus said, you will undergo tribulation. Isn't that what he said? Yes. But it's not the same tribulation being referred to. Be careful in your exegesis of God's word. The tribulation that we're suffering is not the cause that that tribulation will have to endure. In other words, the source of the tribulation in that seven-year period is God. The source of tribulation in this period of time in which the church is continuing to exist and function, it's not from God. It's from men who hate the church. It's from Satan who hates the church even more. That's why we're having tribulation. And don't forget the sin of men. It's because of sin that we have to endure such things. That will all be removed when the church is gone. The wrath of God remains. Verse 10 says, 
It is Christ who gave us this salvation, who died for us, verse 10, that whether we wake or sleep, now that goes back to the original form of the word in the Greek language for sleep, whether we are living or whether we have died as believers, listen carefully, we would be able then to live together with him at the rapture of the church. Therefore, and here it is again, verse 11, same as verse 18 of chapter 4, worded slightly differently, but still the same message. Therefore, comfort each other. Comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. I believe it's the responsibility of the church to comfort one another in times of difficulty. And we are facing times of difficulty. We are facing issues that really are very, very disconcerting. We're facing things that are happening today that never would have happened 50 years ago. Whether it's abortion on the very day of birth, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's drag queens, whether it's socialism, wokeness, whether it's racial issues, hatred of our law enforcement, all those things that are happening around us, they're happening for a reason. The world is crazy against God. And he'll continue to get more and more crazy as time goes on. That's why we're here. We're here to be a voice. We're here to be light. Don't sleep. Stay awake. There's work to be done. The time is very, very short, my friends. But while it is still day, while there is still light, the Word of God is quite clear for the church. Let us redeem the time. Let us continue to serve Him and be salt and light in this dark and wicked world in which we find ourselves living today. And yes, if things get heated even more and we start to lose some of us to martyrdom, it doesn't matter whether we sleep or whether we die. We will be with Him on the day that He chooses to come. And there we shall ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah!